0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxai, and this is Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast.
1: Most of us depend upon radio more than we know. We listen to radio for entertainment. It keeps us informed every minute of every day.
0: Today, we bring you the best audio documentaries of the year. Winners of our Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But before we share these unforgettable stories, just a little bit about who we are and what we do. Third Coast is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great radio. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find and share it in a variety of ways. On the radio, on the internet, at live listening events, We also host an international competition to honor all of the wonderful work our medium has to offer and the talented producers who create it. Each year, we ask the best and the brightest in public radio and beyond to take time out of their busy schedules to be our judges. And let me tell you, it is no easy task. This year, 352 entries poured into the competition from all over the world, including Egypt, Australia, and South Korea nine one-top honors on this special broadcast we bring you the winning stories and behind-the-scenes tales from the producers of this remarkable work let's begin with our best new artist award this prize goes to a reporter or documentarian who's been working in the field for two years or less someone whose creativity and ingenuity perks up our ears and alerts us to a new voice in town this year, the award went to Becky Ripley from the UK. Her winning docudrama chronicles one man's harrowing accident and recovery.
2: So, yeah, um, my name is Tristan Sturrock. I'm an actor. And in 2004, I broke my neck. It happened in Padstow, which is a small fishing village on the north coast of Cornwall and it's a place I've known all my life it's very special here because they celebrate May Day and my accident happened on the 1st of May 2004 on May Day We just moved into our first house together in Padstow, me and my girlfriend, Katie. And I had this beautiful view down to the harbour. You could see
3: out, down through the streets of Padstow and out to sea.
2: Everyone in the town was buzzing, because it's the eve of May.
3: People were coming from all over Cornwall to be part of this great big pagan festival.
2: It's been celebrated here for, for centuries. May Day marks the death of winter and the birth of summer.
3: The drumming had started, the streets were full of people.
2: The whole town was decorated with bunting, flags. All the first flowers of spring. Primroses and cowslits.
3: Bluebells, forget-me-nots.
2: And at the very heart of the day is the hobby horse. But in Padstow it's known as the obios. Dances and he processes through the streets to the May song, and then at certain points in the dance, the oss dies, and then is resurrected again. <laughs> Katie was five months pregnant at the time, and we were about to go down to the Golden Lion Inn. And she said, look, it's fine. You go down without me, but just bring me back some chips.
3: And he said, all right, I'll be back within an hour or so.
2: Yeah, I've got my phone. And no, I'm not going to get too drunk.
3: I said, don't get too drunk. Please don't get too drunk. I remember him giving me a kiss goodbye and kissing my tummy and saying, happy May Day.
2: I went off into the night down the zigzaggy steps at the back of our house that lead all the way down to the Golden Line Inn. Seven, six, four. I used to count them, and there 37 of them, which was how old I was at the time. At the harbour, all the fishing boats were in, and they are all just bobbing away, and the lights were on, and it was just... It was magical, the whole place was full of expectancy, and I was standing outside the pub looking at this, thinking, "I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a dad." And I burst through the doors of the Golden Line Inn with that feeling in my head. and that's how the evening started.. the dying minutes of April, nearly 12 o'clock midnight and we're all gathered in the Golden Line Inn to sing the night song and we've been drinking drinking and this is the beginning this music won't stop now for the next 24 hours and I'm happily. Been in, like the obbyos, and I'm on top of the world. When suddenly I remember chips, totally forgotten the chips. So, ran out the pub, across the cobbled streets, past the chippy, and up the zigzaggy steps. Thinking, What am I going to tell Katie? I don't have the chips, don't have the chips.
3: I remember rolling over and looking at the clock, and um. I thought, no, I'm going to give him a ring just to see, just to see where he is.
2: Hello? Hi, love, it's me. Hi, hey, love. Where are you? I'm on, I'm on my way back. I'm on my way back now. I'm Sonny,
3: just... It's really late. Yeah,
2: I know, I know, I know, but the chips, were, they were not, uh, they chucked, so look, yeah. I'm, I'm nearly home, I'm nearly home. I'm
3: sorry. We said a couple of things to each other. It's really, really late. I know
2: it's late. I know. I I remember feeling quite angry
3: that the chips hadn't arrived. I know. I know. I'm sorry. Okay. But I do remember saying, "I love you." I love you. I just remember saying that. I just remember saying, "I love you."
2: As I was talking to her, I remember looking down and seeing this, this little low wall next to the steps, and so I sat down on it and behind me I could see an ivy-covered hedge. So I leant back, but of course in the darkness what I couldn't tell was the ivy-covered wall was actually set back about five feet. And so I just kept going. And I fell back 10 feet head first until I hit concrete.
1: Tris. Tris? And then? Tris?
2: And then the phone went dead.
1: Tris, love. Can you hear me?
0: That was an excerpt from Mayday Mayday, which was produced and directed by Becky Ripley with editor James Cook for BBC Radio 4 and is the winner of the 2015 Third Coast Best New Artist Award. The first piece of radio Becky has ever produced, Mayday Mayday combines documentary storytelling with reenactments by the real people who are on the scene in a way we'd never heard before. The judges said, By giving this award to Becky, the jury hopes to encourage work that continues to push the boundaries of what a documentary can be. Sometimes radio does more than entertain and inform. It moves people to action. This year, the Third Coast Radio Impact Award went to a story that was doggedly and unflinchingly reported, digging up long-secreted truths about child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church in Minneapolis. Sixteen people at Minnesota Public Radio worked for over a year to bring this story to the airwaves, conducting hundreds of hours of interviews and reviewing thousands of pages of documents. Here's a brief excerpt of this hour long investigative documentary told by reporter Madeleine Buran. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord
4: is with thee. The Cathedral of St. Paul dominates the city skyline. The Archbishop who built this seat of power a century ago is remembered in the street that leads to the state capitol below, John Ireland Boulevard. There are still more Catholics in Minnesota than any other religion. But the majesty of the Cathedral and the faith of parishioners were rocked by a whistleblower in 2013. 39-year-old Jennifer Hasselberger grew up going to Mass on St. Paul's East Side, praying for the Archbishop. Like many Catholics when we're at Mass, my mind still defaults
5: towards the part in the Eucharistic prayer where we pray for our bishop. I still hear the priests of my childhood saying, John R. Roach, our bishop.
4: Hasselberger would learn that the men of the church she'd prayed for had exposed children to abusers, then used the money and the power of the church to keep things quiet. For five years, she served as Archbishop John Ninstead's top advisor on church law. She handled the church's most secret documents and stumbled across troubling information about sexual abuse by priests. She alerted church leaders that children were in danger. Church leaders dismissed her warnings. In April of 2013, Hasselberger resigned. But she felt burdened by what she knew. In July, she called NPR News. I absolutely believe that We have priests in our parishes currently
5: who have either committed acts of sexual abuse against a minor or who we have more than adequate reason to believe are capable of doing so.
4: Hasselberger's revelations stunned parishioners. No one at such a high level in any diocese in the Catholic Church in the United States had ever come forward to expose the cover-up. She revealed a carefully guarded web of secrets and a culture bred to protect the Church at any cost. To some, it was an old story. Sexual abuse in the Catholic Church has been in the news for decades. But what Hasselberger revealed was that what most people think about the scandal is wrong, especially in the Twin Cities. One by one, NPR news stories exposed what the archdiocese had tried to keep secret for decades. The fallout was immediate. The vicar general resigned within days. Police opened criminal investigations, Catholics held protests, and Ninstead canceled his public appearances. In mid-November, Ninstead recorded a statement announcing he would bring in an outside firm to review clergy files.
6: We also want to assure the public that in all cases under my leadership, we have complied with mandated reporting requirements to law enforcement. Serious mistakes have been made in the Archdiocese's handling of abuse cases.
4: It was something victims have heard before. Mistakes have
7: been made. Mistakes! I mean, I just wanted to scream it. Unbelievable. They are unable to tell the truth. Call it what it is. Sexual crimes against little children.
0: Betrayed by Silence, produced by Madeline Baran and Sasha Eslanian for Minnesota Public Radio News, is the winner of the 2015 Third Coast Radio Impact Award. As a result of NPR's reporting, the Archdiocese of Minneapolis was shaken to its core. In the few months after the program aired, the Archdiocese filed for bankruptcy, senior church officials, including the archbishop, resigned, and criminal charges were filed against the church. We spoke with reporter Madeline Baran, who explained the criminal charges to us.
4: So they're being charged with failing to protect several kids from a priest who's now in prison for abuse. So it's all focused on this one case, and it's against the archdiocese, not against the bishops or church officials who were the, the people who, who made these decisions that put these kids in harm's way. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that the charges here are misdemeanors, and they carry a maximum fine of $18,000. So we're not going to be seeing, at least at this point, bishops or priests going to jail for their role in this cover-up.
0: There's been an awful lot of reporting on clergy sex scandals in the past dozen years. Uh, what sets your coverage apart
4: Maybe one thing, which is clergy sex abuse has been reported over and over and over again in the last few decades, but there's this lure of a narrative that reporters have that can be quite dangerous, where everyone wants a story to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so every time this scandal was covered, it was covered, you know, up until now we're at the end, now we're moving forward, there are new policies, there's apologies, it's time for healing... And what we saw time and again in our coverage as we looked back over decades is that we're still not done with this story, that this story is still very much in the middle. And it's our responsibility as reporters to resist that lure, to put an ending on a scandal that's still very much ongoing.
0: That was Madeline Baran, producer of Betrayed by Silence, winner of the 2015 Third Coast Festival Radio Impact Award. To hear the entire story, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Best of the Best, Part 1, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxai. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Our work is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition. But you can also hear great radio from around the world anytime on the Third Coast podcast. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org to subscribe or find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Coming up after the break, a famous building in New York City, a major structural flaw and a possible disaster. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxai. And now we've come to the 2015 Third Coast Bronze Award winner, a little-known story of an architectural catastrophe averted. Because of a variety of circumstances, in 1977, the city core building in New York was effectively built on stilts, which made it less stable than your average skyscraper. So the architects employed clever design elements to make it stronger, and all was good. But then, an undergraduate architecture student did some math and determined that a really strong wind could send the building down like a domino in the middle of Manhattan. The student called the building's famous engineer, William Lemesure, to let him know of the potential danger at hand. Here's what happened next, as told by Joel Werner and 99% Invisible
8: host, Roman Mars. LEMESURE could now see what no one else had.
6: No one except for that pesky student from New Jersey.
8: And as LeMessure started looking into the student's claims about these quartering winds, he realized the situation wasn't just bad...
6: It was a disaster waiting to happen.
8: The return period to failure was 16 years. Think about that. Here's what that means. LeMessure calculated the quartering wind velocities required to topple the Citicorp centre. He then matched these velocities to weather patterns to see how frequently, on average, winds strong enough to blow the building over
6: occurred. LeMessure found that a storm strong enough to knock over the building hits New York City on average once every 55 years. But that's only if the tuned mass damper is working.
8: The tuned mass damper needs power to run. And if you're getting a huge storm, LeMessure realized, it's not unlikely that the city could suffer a blackout.
6: LeMessure ran the numbers again, this time imagining the damper without power. And it was even worse. Without the damper, a storm strong enough to topple Citicorp Center hits New York on average once every 16
8: years. To put this another way, for each year the building was standing, there was about a one in 16 chance of a storm potent enough to take out the Citicorp Center.
6: This building is 915 feet high. If it failed, it would topple sideways in the wind, crashing into other Manhattan skyscrapers. A whole slew of buildings from Midtown to Central Park would fall like dominoes.
1: I said, this thing is
8: in real trouble.
6: This brand new skyscraper was on the verge of catastrophic failure.
8: But the imminent disaster wasn't the result of one glaring oversight. Rather, it was a sequence of minor issues. Let's remember how we got here. This building was on stilts because they had to build over the church. And stilts placed at the corners would have been just fine,
6: except the church was at the corner of the lot, so the stilts had to be in the middle of each
8: face. And that could have been A-OK, except the offset stilts led LeMessur to use an ultralight chevron bracing structure.
6: Which would have been perfectly adequate, except in the end, those chevron Vs were bolted, not welded together.
8: And even that could have been fine. Except no one thought about how vulnerable this crazy design was to wind blowing at its corners. No one except an anonymous college student. LeMessur went to Citicorp chairman Walter Wriston and told him they would need to open up the building and weld it back together. And he said, how much is it going to cost?
1: I don't think it's going to cost an awful lot.
8: A million or two?
1: Uh, that's nothing. A building that costs 175 million, and if it falls
8: down. From here, LeMessurier and his team worked with the City bigwigs to coordinate emergency repairs on the building. With the help of the NYPD, they worked out an evacuation plan spanning a 10 block radius. They had 2,500 Red Cross volunteers on standby and three different weather services employed 24 7 to keep an eye on potential windstorms. They welded through the night and quit at daybreak, just as the building occupants returned to work.
6: But all this happened in secret, over three months, without telling anyone who worked there.
8: Which is the part of the story I kind of have a problem with. I mean, isn't this situation serious enough to warrant informing the building's tenants? My wife works in a skyscraper in midtown Manhattan, and you know, it's about informed consent. I'd want her to be able to make the judgement call about whether or not to go work in a faulty building, not to have it made for her.
6: Their thinking was, a contingency plan was in place and ready to be invoked as soon as a storm strong enough to blow the building down was in striking distance of New York. Except…
8: There was a giant storm racing up the east coast. Hurricane Ella. LeMessur says the powers that be were just hours away from calling in the evacuation. But the hurricane veered into the Atlantic before it hit New York, and in the end, the public was never notified.
6: And I know what you're thinking. If only there was some kind of independent organization that serves the public's right to know, that might wonder why Citicorp Center was aglow with blowtorches all night every night. You know, something like a newspaper. Except...
8: The New York Times was on strike. Not only did the New York Times go on
1: strike, but all the newspapers in New York went on strike until October. So we had a press blackout, and that was the greatest thing that ever happened.
6: So word never got out and construction was finished.
8: And CityCorp Center has remained standing ever since, long enough to be renamed City Group Center and later 601 Lexington. And this whole thing remained a secret for almost 20 years.
6: In the early 90s, writer Joe Morgenstern overheard the story being told at a party. He interviewed LeMessure and broke the story in The New Yorker in 1995.
8: LeMessure went on to tell the story publicly, like he did at MIT, which is how we have him talking about this. And after the story got out, it was written up as a textbook case of good ethics in structural engineering. New York was spared a tremendous loss of life and the annihilation of its skyline all because Bill LeMessure was humble enough to give time to the inquiry of an undergraduate student.
6: Thank goodness for this uppity college senior and his thesis, and kudos to Bill LeMessure, who, through his humility and heroism, saves the day.
1: And, uh, that's really the end of the story. Except... Now, wait a minute. A couple more things here.
8: Let's take a step back... And remember how this story starts.: I got a call from a student. He was
1: a real student from New Jersey. Maybe he was an architectural student. his teacher had given him this building to study. I do not know the school. I wish he would call me.
8: The way LeMeure tells it and how Joe Morganstern told it in The New Yorker, the college student, the young hero of our story, was lost to history.
6: Okay, wait for it, Wait for this moment. It's a good one. Here it comes.
0: That was an excerpt of Structural Integrity, produced by Joel Werner and Sam Greenspan, with editor Roman Mars for 99% Invisible from Radiotopia. It's the winner of the 2015 Third Coast Best Documentary Bronze Award. To find out what happens next, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org, to listen to the entire story. Last year, we created a new award to recognize a story beautifully written and produced that's also out for fun. This year's winner is an episode of Mystery Show, a podcast in which host and super sleuth Starly Kine solves ungoogleable mysteries. In her winning story, here is the conundrum. A friend of Starley's, a little-known novelist, saw a picture of Britney Spears holding a copy of her book. The writer, Andrea Siegel, a major Britney fan, had to know, how did she get it? Why did she have it? And most importantly, did she like it? This was a case for no ordinary detective or public radio producer, but Starley Kine was up to the task. Her first line of questioning was to discover exactly when her client's love of all things Britney began.
7: I got into her when she was dating Justin Timberlake there's just this picture that I always have of them in my mind where they're wearing matching denim outfits. I don't know if you've ever (laughs) Mm -hmm. seen this picture, like just full head to toe denim. And she seems really, really happy. And this is my guy. And we're so much alike. We're even wearing denim together. And then just knowing that, you know, later she cheated on him and she broke up that relationship and supposedly has been pretty upset about that event ever since is just really interesting to me.
9: And then he went on to be so respectable.
7: Yeah. But I still find her to be the far more interesting of the two. Like, him I would want to have nothing to do with, but her I would love to talk to. Unless he has a current email address for her.
9: The idea of her having an email address. You're making her seem like she's more of this world than (laughs) I believe she is. Like, I just think.
7: You don't think she has email?
9: She just is. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard for me to
7: believe. She has email. I like to imagine that she has, like, secret personality email where she can just go on Facebook and be a secret person and interact with people not as herself.
9: Facebook account. That I can believe.
7: Maybe she's one of these, like, weird people who keep liking pictures of my baby who I don't know who they are. (laughs) And it's just Britney Spears. (laughs) I'm sending you this picture right now so you can
9: take a look at it. I examine the photo of Britney holding Andrea's book for clues. Britney herself only makes up one little corner of the photo. She's walking through the back exit of the restaurant, surrounded by men with cameras. Paparazzi tend to work in a triangle, with the celebrity at the center and a shooter on three sides. That way, when the celebrity turns away from one camera, they're facing another. And when they turn away again, they're facing a third. In the photo, Brittany is wearing a white dress that Andrea read was one she wore a lot while pregnant. Britney's not pregnant in the photo. She gave birth to her son a few months before. But Andrea understood why she was still wearing the dress. She also wore her maternity clothes for a while after having her baby.
7: It's so crazy to think that you know something about a celebrity that you don't know. But I've always had this distinct sense that she's probably an introvert. And I really identify with that.
9: Because you, you're an introvert. Right.
7: I think she likes performing and she likes that aspect of her job, but she really hates everything else.
9: This is like one of the pictures that we see of Brittany all the time where she's like coming out of the 7-Eleven holding a slushie or a candy. <laughs> she's not usually carrying books at all, right?
7: No. And this she took out to dinner with her and it was, <laughs> it was dinner with her parents. They were celebrating her mom's birthday.
9: And that's her dad?
7: That's her dad, who's her now legal conservator. He very much kind of manages her life. You know, he's in charge of her finances and in charge of her decisions.
9: Do you think Brittany maybe brought it to dinner with her parents because her parents are always giving her a hard time but not reading enough? or like No. no, <laughs> a very firm no.
7: I don't feel that way at all. She doesn't look very happy, and this is kind of the era where I think they started maybe discussing the conservatorship with her. So I think she might have been angry with them at this point in her life. And so maybe she was just reading through dinner <laughs> while her parents tried to engage with her.
9: So what do you want to know, Brittany, about your book?
7: I want to know how she got it. Mm-hmm. And then I really want to know if she liked it. And if she didn't, I'd be open to hearing her critique of it. <laughs> but if someone could kind of get these answers for me, you know, I'm not a person with a lot to offer materially, but um, you know, I would like do anything for them. <laughs> if anyone could bring me close to this, we could strike some sort of Sounds <laughs> like I'm offering sounds <laughs> like I'm offering sex, which I'm, I'm not not. But um, yeah, I think my boyfriend would understand. He knows how badly I've wanted to get an answer to this.
9: So this case boiled down to two things, a book and a person who is seen carrying that book. The person was one of the most notoriously unreachable celebrities on the planet. I decided to start with the book. Was Andrea's book really as unknown as she made it out to be? She wouldn't be the first broad to lie to the person she was asking for help from. Would it really have been that hard for Britney Spears to just stumble onto it? Thank you for calling me up on Book of Dukes. Hi, um, I am calling about a book. Okay. I'm calling about the book To Feel Stuff. Say that one more time. To Feel Stuff. What is it called? To Feel Stuff.
8: To Steal Stuff?
9: To Feel Stuff. Um.
7: hmm. Not seeing it.
9: No? No. Have you ever heard of it? Uh, I haven't, no. What do you think it's about based on the title?
8: Probably stealing.
9: Even though, but it's to feel stuff, not steal. Oh, okay. What do you think it's about if it's called to feel stuff? Um, feelings. (laughs) Thank you
1: for calling the book World in Pondelag. Christina. How can I help you?
9: I'm looking for the book to feel stuff. Okay, two feel stuff. Yeah, two feel stuff. It's kind of a weird title, huh?
1: Do we've had reader.
9: Oh yeah? Like what?
1: Well there were some good ones a couple of months ago. Mm. Let's see if I can find
9: a good one. Okay.
1: Um never surrender to a scandal. that's not too bad.
9: It's um, so true. Never should. <laughs>
1: <laughs> In your wildest Scottish dreams.
9: The echoes of Scotland Street. Oh, are that is that the same person who wrote the Scottish Dreams one? No, it wasn't the same author. <laughs> it
1: <was> a different <laughs> <one>. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of ladies like to go to Ireland and Scotland to hear the accents and everything. Uh huh. So they think all the men over there are probably really sexy.
9: Is that your type? Do you like the Scottish type? I like the accents. Okay.
1: But I actually went to Australia and I had an um, Irish bartender. That was really fun.
9: Wait, you were in Australia and the bartender was Irish? Yep. That's a story you once had a bartender who was Irish. <laughs> I don't know what it
1: is about the Irish accent. Here's a
9: thought. What if you went to Ireland? And then you probably would hear the accent all over the place.
1: I would die of happiness if I went to Ireland. <laughs> really? <So> <laughs> 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 yeah, that's the dream place to go. Because of the accent only? Oh, well, no. I want to see the land, like all the castles and the fairy circles and just a bunch of other things that
9: go on over there, too. Did you say fairy circles? And I want to drink. This is an attainable dream. I think you can go. You went to a much further place. It's much harder to go to Australia.
1: Well, it was good because uh, my uh, my mom actually won the lottery, and we have family up there, so we didn't have to pay so much for hotels, and it was easy to
9: get flights because my parents won the lottery. Wait, how much of a lottery? Like the big
1: lottery? Uh, they won a million dollars on the Powerball a couple of years ago. Seriously? Yeah. Me and my ex boyfriend were sitting with my mom at their in their couch and I showed on the T V that there was a million dollar winner from Chilton, Wisconsin and my mom's like looking at the numbers they're putting up and she's like, Hey, this is the numbers they usually play She actually got the ticket and she looked she made us all read through it and then she called my dad. The first thing that they bought with their money was a lawnmower.
9: But she but if your mom wins a million dollars and you have a dream Oh well, yeah, but the thing is,
1: it's a dream that I want
9: to attain myself, and I don't want to use my parents' money. I want to be
1: able to save for it because I'm an adult.
9: You're very responsible with your dreams.
1: Well, you know, if you just ask your parents for everything, and then when they cut you off, you won't be able to do anything for yourself. But you said the book, To Feel Stuff, by Andrea Sigo. Yeah. We wouldn't actually have it in the store. Was there
9: anything else you needed? No. I mean, there's a lot of new things that I have questions about, but you've definitely answered my original question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the odds of finding a bookseller whose parents had won the lottery were better than finding a bookseller who'd heard of to feel stuff. Andrea was right. Her book had tanked. I crossed that item off my list and stared at the next one. Find Britney Spears.
0: That was an excerpt from Brittany, hosted and produced by Starly Kine for Mystery Show from Gimlet Media. Brittany won the 2015 Third Coast Skylarking Award and is one of five winners this year that debuted on podcasts. The most in Third Coast history. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxai. Today we're listening to winners of our annual Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. But you can hear great radio from around the world anytime on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up next, peering into someone's window starts as an innocent act of casual voyeurism, but ends up an all-consuming, obsessive pastime stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxey. Every year, the staff of the Third Coast Festival reserves an award for an audio documentary we find especially impressive. A story that's beautifully produced and wholly original in its telling. This year, the 2015 Third Coast Director's Choice Award goes to The Living Room, a story that had us mesmerized from start to finish. Producer Brianna Breen and sound designer Brendan Baker explore what it means to be an anonymous observer of someone else's life. Here's The Living Room.
5: So I've been living in my apartment about 15 years. And one evening, I walked in the living room, which has three bay windows, which face the gardens in the back. And over half a block of gardens and across a small street, there was this bright window that I'd never noticed before. But it's at the exact eye level of my third floor apartment. And after a while, I realized that I'd never seen it because There had always been curtains, and so it was always, I think, dimly lit. The curtains were often closed. And all of a sudden, there's this bright light and no curtains. And it was like a movie screen. Fifteen years, and that window has meant nothing. (laughs) I haven't even noticed it. And now it's all I think about. there were new tenants and it had always been a living room and now it was suddenly a bedroom and there were these two people in there and they were naked this young couple in their 20s they were really lovey-dovey and they were always naked The thing is, they pushed their bed so that the head was up against the windows. So their heads, you could see both of their heads lying there. So you'd see things that you just, like, they were just shocking. I just had been there all of this time, and suddenly you could see people having sex. Really clearly, like like amazingly clearly. I for, I had no idea that you could see so well across uh, such a distance. And it was really uncomfortable, my husband and I were um, still adjusting to parenthood and it wasn't the most romantic time in our in our lives. My son was probably 3 and when you're new parents to a toddler especially because he sleeps in the bed with us too. So he's like literally right between us. The last thing you need is a couple of hotties getting it on across the window reminding your husband of everything he's not getting. <laughs> So to have this really beautiful young woman that was really thin and, and, and naked all the time, really, you know, it, it was very frustrating. And, 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 you know, she had this beautiful, tall, lanky, well-built boyfriend. And so at first I, I just, because I felt like my husband was going to be staring at this naked woman all the time, I started closing the living room curtains which is really kind of silly. And, and it made our room really dark and we never closed those curtains. And so that didn't work. So I thought about like making a really big sign that said like, close your curtains or buy curtains. They didn't even have curtains. Buy curtains. We can see you. And I thought about going by their building. I had no idea what their unit was and leaving a note And um, then I started thinking that was really silly and prudish and started realizing that they were just young and I had to just get over it and live with it and move on. And so that's what I did. We got really used to them and they became sort of this symbol of what we used to be, you know, in our 20s. They were living this really carefree time. And that's another thing that it was kind of hard not to sometimes, when you're in early parenthood, you get a little bitter, I think, about some of those freedoms. And we'd watch them sleeping till 11 while we'd been up since five with our toddler. And and we saw them eating breakfast on the roof together. So we got used to it, and we, we, know, we would notice, like, oh, look, they got a new you know plant in there. And they became sort of part of our lives, you know, because they were just always there and never, ever bought curtains. Do you think all the neighbors in your building and the surrounding buildings also saw this? It's funny. I think that the way that we're positioned, because all of the buildings around us are different sizes, and our building is the tallest one on our block but it's exactly at the right level to see I have a friend next door and then a friend across the way and and all of them have windows facing the gardens but not all of them are blocked and I look at the other windows of the buildings around us and I don't think anyone has this perfect level view the irony is that I'm such a private person I- And I don't know, am I supposed to have maybe respected their privacy and just looked away? But it's impossible because that's the way the chairs face. (laughs) They face the window. I I couldn't not see them if I wanted to. But I guess I could have not gotten the binoculars. So time went by, and this is maybe a year and a half later, two years later, and I remember seeing their room, and the light was on, but it was empty, and I thought that was strange because it was five o'clock in the morning, and they never went anywhere early. And it was like that for like a whole week, it was just this empty room with the light on, and I thought that was strange. They, they didn't seem to be there as often. Or maybe just she would be there and he was gone for long periods of time. And we just kind of forgot about them. You know, we just, there, were, there, they, well, there wasn't as much action going on and they weren't as present. And so we just kind of lived our lives and forgot about them for maybe seven or eight months. At the end of last year, in December, There was this night when my husband and I, separately, had both seen this woman, naked, sitting in the window. Kind of chubby, slump-shouldered woman who was just looking down at the street. And we both thought it was so strange. Just couldn't figure out who she was and what she was doing and why she was naked. And uh, a few nights later, there was this young man standing right at the window by the bed and he was skeletal he was so thin and he was bald completely and we realized it was the same couple they had completely changed he was sick there was something serious wrong with him that I just watched the window all the time he would sit all day he was there because I work from home and I would see him all day in the bedroom either lying down or sitting at the computer and then after a couple of weeks he was just lying down and he was just there and his bald head would be um, up against the, the pane of glass all the time And she would be there and she'd come in and she would bring him things, but mostly it was just him there by himself. And sometimes he would have like his knees bent and you could just see how uh, skeletal they were. They were just bones. And sometimes he'd kick off the blankets and he was just lying there naked and emaciated. And then after a while, he was just always burrowed under the blankets. I found myself thinking like, well, maybe he's been through chemo and he's recovering, and you know he's going through this um this sick phase before he gets well because he's so young he's in a, you know he's just such a young guy. We had to go to Colorado to see my family for Christmas, and um I worried all the time I was there I thought about them, and I worried that he wasn't going to be there. When we got back, I worried all the time about it. When we got back about 10 days later, um, he was still there, but his head looked so much smaller and, um, and there were a lot of people there. And then, and then I got out my binoculars. I got my birding binoculars. <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but it, at that point I felt so invested. it looked like people coming to say goodbye and there was this sort of short um, blonde Midwestern looking woman who I guessed was his mother and then there was this young guy who just kept pacing the halls you know you could just see there were two doorways leading out of this room and you could just see him go down one side and through the other and then back and forth and back and forth and I figured he was the brother and it looked like the girlfriend's sister was also there. It was just just a guest, looked like her. I remember there was just this little gathering going on in the living room right below. The neighbors were standing around and having drinks and they had no idea at all what was going on right upstairs. I would watch people come and go. Then after a while everyone left except for the girlfriend and the mother. And and I spent <laughs> and I spent uh, all that evening like s- sitting vigil on the back of the couch and and watching. I remember the girlfriend lying beside him for a long time on her own and she was just stroking his face so tenderly it was so much affection that really transcends the kind of young love that you expect all i could see was the top of his head all that time and i remember later seeing her standing by the bed and the mother on the other side and they were just all talking and she put a hand on his forehead she put the back of her hand on his Forehead, and then she was wiping at her eyes, and you could tell that there was this—that there was this sense that something, that it was getting closer. Then I could see this reckoning, where she she was wiping at her eyes and touching his forehead, and wiping at her eyes, and there were candles lit, and and this um, young woman was on one side, and his mother was on the other side. And they just were lying there for a really long time, and they had their hands just resting on his chest. And so I watched it for a long time, The mother and the girlfriend were lying on either side of him, and you could tell it was his, this was the end. I thought, now all that's left is the girlfriend and the mother, and inexplicably me. Me, like I'm one of the three people at the deathbed. They lay there for a long time, and then they just got up and they went into the other room. <clears throat> and I realized. That must have been the moment. All this time, you know, I always had this sense that, you know, they're, they're going to break up. They're going to move out. Nobody that age stays together very long. And, and I had no idea. It was just like this beautiful love story. So the next day... <clears throat> The next day, I got up and I went to the window, first thing. And they were folding up blankets and stacking them on the bed. And I figured that he had been taken away in the night. And so I was in the kitchen and my husband called because he had, he knew how obsessed I'd gotten with this situation. And he said, there's activity over there. And I came running, and I got my binoculars, and I looked and and realized that he was still there. He was still on the bed. His body was still there, and it was the coroner. So the coroner and his assistant came, and they had these white plastic gloves on, and they pulled his body to the edge of the bed and onto this white sheet. And I just remember the the lifelessness of it. It looked so shrunken. It almost looked like a shrunken rubber proxy of a body. So incredibly dead. (laughs) They wrapped him in the sheet, and they zipped him into a vinyl bag, and they put him on this kind of gurney. They took the gurney out, and I just had this very strange impulse, and I ran and threw on my coat, kind of over my pajamas and ran out to the street and ran to the corner and I got there just as they were hauling him out. They were carrying him out and the girlfriend was there. She was talking to one of them in the doorway and they loaded him into this van and I realized that they didn't know me at all. Like I had, you know, I had no place to be there and they looked at me. I remember the coroner's assistant looking at me like I was sort of a like a rubbernecker in the street, you know, looking at this grisly scene. And I realized that's, that's what I was. I had no place to be there. And suddenly it all felt so perverse. So I went home and I felt very strange about the whole thing. Um, and I tried to tell myself that well, I never wanted to be part of their lives. I, wanted, I was the one that wanted them to put up curtains. I wanted them to, to shut the intimate stuff out. I, I was uncomfortable with it. I was the one that wanted out. And I started remembering all of a sudden the when I moved to that apartment so many years ago and I was in my mid-20s that I had to share the apartment with a roommate because it was too expensive. And my bedroom was in the living room. And I remember how when I first moved in, I pushed the head of my bed up against the three-bay windows so <laughs> so that in the morning I could see the sky. I had no clue. It never occurred to me that anyone could see me, that I remember that I felt like whenever I looked out the window, I never saw anyone, and I never closed my curtains either. Did you ever find out either of their names? I, I never have found out their names, and I looked through the local obituaries obsessively for weeks, and there was never anyone that fit his description. There was never anyone young enough or that looked like him. Um, so no idea. I walked by their place several times, and there's only, there are only numbers on the mailboxes and the buzzers, and there's, there are no names. So I can't look up anything. I I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea who she is. I have no idea who he was. No idea what he was sick with. I don't know if I've gotten anything right. Maybe they were married. But I didn't get wrong the fact that he died because I was there. (laughs) I was there for that because I saw it all. I think about that a lot how he chose that he chose to die in that in that bed in that bedroom. And he didn't choose to go to a hospice or anywhere he wanted to be in his bedroom. All of those long days from the morning when I looked out in the evening he was just exactly the same position. That was where he wanted to be. And uh <laughs> It's where all of the happy times were, I guess, and the end times, you know. Just a couple of days after it happened, she was up on the roof with a friend doing doing yoga. And um, I've watched her lying around a lot. She went out of town, I think, for a bit. And um, she's still there. I have been watching her recovery. And... Instead of being this young woman, she looks totally different. She looks so changed. She just looks like this very um, experienced, world-weary person. She has a job now that gets her up very early because I get up at 6 and she's already dressed and heads out at like 6.15. And the other night I saw her Um, and she was in her bedroom and she um, was wearing this baggy t-shirt and all the lights were on and, and she was dancing, (laughs) just dancing around her room. So yeah, I, I want her, um, I want her to move on this, this young woman that I was so cranky and bitter about, you know, now she's Now she's, um, now I feel so protective and kind of maternal, you know? If you ran into her, like, at the corner market or something, do you think you could ever say anything to her? Yeah, if I ran into her, I wouldn't say a thing. (laughs) What would I say? I've been watching you through your window. How creepy would that be? (laughs) Um yeah no way she doesn't you know she she doesn't know that she doesn't know that there's this person that um i don't know that's this complete stranger that's out there really rooting for her you know
0: That was The Living Room, produced by Brianna Breen and edited and sound designed by Brendan Baker for the podcast Love & Radio from Radiotopia. We spoke with producer Brianna Breen, who feels the story is about Diane, the narrator, and the one doing the watching. But she also feels it's ultimately up to the listener to decide if the piece is about the seer or the scene, about voyeurism or empathy or both. But Brianna says the living room does speak to a greater good.
4: You know, none of us knows the depths of
5: um, others' life experience or what they're handling. And, you know, I think just taking a moment to recognize that and that there there could be something going on for somebody that we're not aware of is kind of an important moment to take. And And I think it puts things into perspective, you know, what Diane went through and what the the people that she witnessed went through. And I think just witnessing each other and having some sense of compassion for the people that we pass on the street is important and it can be
0: meaningful. Brianna Breen, producer of the 2015 Third Coast Director's Choice Award. We hear things all day long, but when we take the time to actually listen, The world cracks open like an egg going sunny side up. So much sound, color, timbre, and texture spilling joyfully into the world. We capture the best and reserve it just for you. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. One note before the credits roll. We couldn't possibly squeeze all of the Third Coast winners into this hour, but they're available for you to listen to and cherish whenever you'd like. Just visit thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2015 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Elissa Dudley and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The managing director is Sarah Geis. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Logan Foundation, and Bloomberg Philanthropies. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.